Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. I'd like for you to consider this person, Thomas, and his uh, predicament as we go to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Thomas has been employed at the same company for close to 19 years. And during that time, he has gained a rather good reputation as a hard, conscientious worker that is willing to go the extra mile for both those above and below him in the management team. Many times he is approached by his co-workers who ask for his advice when confronted with problems at home, at life, and at work. So he is that go-to person. In return, he encourages and comforts them and promises to pray for them. Each time the employee would respond positively to his advice and counsel, until lately that is. Recently, with all the political, cultural, and social turmoil, Thomas has noticed that his co-workers have been avoiding him and have quit asking him for his advice. He offers to pray for them, uh, his praise, or his offers to pray for them has fallen on deaf ears. And sometimes rough words are spoken back. It seems that one of his co-workers had finally came and visited and attended one of, uh, one of Thomas's church uh, meetings, services. And he was not happy with their stance on several issues. Traditional marriage, counseling for children, uh, suffering with gender issues, confusion, and their pro-life stance. Upset at what he considers as beliefs that are on the wrong side of history, this employee has been spreading false interpretations and applications about Thomas's church and Thomas's faith belief. And he's encouraging others to isolate and to ignore Thomas. We might call that ghosting or doxing today. Many have also taken up the cause in avoiding Thomas, talking behind his back, unfollowing him and blocking him from their social media feeds and rejecting his smiles and his kind words to them. His family obviously is upset at this unfair treatment and they're worried about Thomas's mental and emotional health. Some of his friends at, at church tell him to just ignore everybody and to offer not to offer any more counsel or help to others. His small group wanting to be an encouragement to him, counsel him to, to look for another place of employment. <clears throat> Frustrated and isolated and dejected, Thomas believes that he still has much to offer the company and his co-workers. So he decides to make an appointment with the elders at his church and get their guidance on how to proceed. Let me ask you, if Thomas were to come to you for counsel, how should I approach this? How should I respond? What words of encouragement would you give him to those that have mistreated him, misinterpreted him, and abused him? How would you respond yourself if this has happened to you? I know I'm speaking to this. I know that some of you have already received this type of rejectment, rejectment, rejection from either employees or for friends or even from families, members. Last week, we began the second sermon of Jesus uh, that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It has been traditionally called the Sermon on the Plain and is much in common with the Sermon on the Mount. 
In this message, Jesus presents his manifesto uh, describing the upside-down kingdom in which God's love reverses our worldly value systems. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God will consist of radical generosity, servant leadership, peacemaking, and forgiveness. We read of Jesus pronouncing blessing on the children of God and woe against those who rejected his life-saving message of hope and restoration. Today, as we go to Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 27, we're going to continue Jesus' sermon as he continues to challenge his followers to not adopt the behavior and attitude of the world, but the attitude of their father, specifically in regard to how they respond to those that will mistreat, take advantage, and persecute them. The passage this morning follows the precept principle and person or person method of teaching that encourages the disciples to live out their faith in a world that's going to be hostile to their beliefs and faith. So with that, let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 6 and let's restart with verse 27 and we're just going to read through 31 at this moment where Luke writes, but I say to you, quoting Jesus who hear. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic as well. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Father, give us wisdom as we open up. Uh, to what many of us would say are familiar words. Very difficult words, but very familiar. As we consider these attitudes, these perceptions, these behaviors of those that are children of God. Father, we want to be your children this morning. We know that this sometimes can be difficult uh, decisions to think of, difficult behaviors to, to model, to mimic. But Lord, give us your wisdom, give us your understanding. And Father, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves as the Spirit works within us and that we may respond to His Word in a way that's pleasing to the Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. As Jesus said earlier, He is forming a new community. And that new community is, is called the Kingdom of God and it will consist of all of God's chosen children. And in this sermon, he's pronouncing that this community is going to exhibit new perspectives, new way of looking at life. They're going to be exhibit new, new attitudes and behaviors that are countercultural to the world. It's going to be an upside down. Every, everything that's going to be reversed. The way that we used to live, we're not longer going to look that way or live that way Again, the kingdom of God is going to introduce, introduce, as I said, a reversal of fortune to those who are considered poor or outsiders and outcasts by the world standards. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is speaking. Now, this is important. He is speaking to those who are already citizens of the kingdom of God. He is not advocating here behavior modification or working to adopt these attitudes, but to point out that these are the marks of a genuine believer and citizen of the kingdom. And he begins by commanding them to, absorb, to observe four precepts. Now, again, we're going to look at the precept, the principle, and then the person. As you've heard me say before, the precepts are the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, the rules. This is how a citizen, a child of God, should live. 
And we see that he gives them four of them. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Once again, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And if you're like me, you probably have been on the receiving end of one of those things. We just, it's just natural that even from an early age, we develop enemies for some reason. Where our personalities are hardwired different from someone else and we respond differently or they respond differently to us. To others who sometimes just hate us for no reason or other or they are jealous or envious in some way. Those who, who curse us. Have you ever driven on the freeway? You've seen that, experienced that. And then pray for those who abuse you, those who mistreat you. Here we have four exceedingly difficult commands. We are not hardwired to respond in this way to those that mean to deem to harm us. We don't naturally love those who are enemies. We don't naturally do good to those who hate us. We don't normally bless those who curse us. Nor is it just hardwired in us to pray for those who abuse us. No, we typically respond in kind to how they respond to us. But what we're seeing here is God is saying, you need to respond differently than how the world expects you to respond. Now, to help us understand how to apply these commands, Jesus is then going to give them four examples. The first example references personal attacks. Jesus commands, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, what are you to do? Offer the, only, the other one also. Now, <laughs> excuse me, this is one of those ones that's like, what are you talking about? If someone comes up and slaps me or punches me, I'm to turn the other one. And I, at this time, I used to, when I used to t- tell teens, well, it doesn't say that you can't duck. But what he's talking about here is an attitude. This is speaking of foregoing personal retaliation. This is about retaliating, giving tick for tack. Whether that is physical, mental, or emotional. We are not to personally retaliate to those who harm us, who abuse us. John MacArthur writes that so when it means, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? We want to understand what that means. It simply means this, he writes. When you have been treated with humiliation, when you have been treated with shame, when you have been treated with some sort of anger and hostility, when you have been despised and scorned and rejected, just keep on loving them and get ready to be hit again. It's not necessarily talking about physically, but don't retaliate. If they speak harshly to you, don't speak harsh in return. When they abuse you, when they, uh, don't want, when they block you from Facebook, it doesn't mean that you go and do the same. It doesn't mean if they're yelling at you that you need to yell back. Now, parents, this is something difficult. This is where we train our children right here and there in the here and now of how to model this. The love that has been called for here, love your enemies, means don't retaliate. Remember, one of the things of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it bears all things and that it's long-suffering. It doesn't defend itself against this kind of humiliation, rejection, and hostility as, 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 as uh, um, uh, humbling as that can be, as, as difficult as that can be. It doesn't get angry. It doesn't hate when it is hit. Now, the second example references a theft and intimidation. 
Jesus commands his disciples, from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now in Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, this was in regard to being sued in the court of law. Now you need to understand what a cloak and a tunic was in those days. In those days, uh, people did not have uh, clothing like you and I have. <coughs> I'm sure that's pretty obvious. They didn't have a wardrobe. They didn't have a closet full of things. They didn't have jeans and Levi's and things of that nature and different types of shirt. They would wear what's called a tunic. And a, and a tunic was something that they would wear uh, just kind of underneath. And then they would have a cloak. Now, a cloak would be like a, a heavy coat or like a heavy blanket, some type of heavy material, and they would use that in the cold weather. Now, Israel is pretty much kind of like Southern California. It has that Mediterranean type uh, temperament and uh, uh, weather. And so like here, you would need something to be warm in. But it was also, not only would they wear it out <clears throat> outside if it was cold, but it was also what they slept with. They didn't have quilts and comforters and things of that nature as you and I think of, of a bedroom and sleeping arrangements. So that cloak was something that they would use. And many times, especially for those who were poor, if there was a lawsuit, they would go to court and the judge would say, give over your cloak. Well, they would take their cloak and they would take it for the day. But the law, the Mosaic law was, if you take his cloak as collateral, you must give it back at night so he could sleep with it. You were not to leave them destitute. Well, what, what Jesus is teaching here is if, if in this case, if they want your cloak, be willing to give your tunic as well. In other words, then you would kind of just walk what would you have underneath your tunic. In this case, Jesus is calling his disciples to be willing to surrender their rights when appropriate. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, remarked once when he was robbed, said, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. He also says, second, because they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because I was, it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. It's not looking for reparations. It's not looking for comeback. It's not looking for more retaliation. Give me more. It's in other words, willingly, generously give when appropriate. The third example concerns generosity. Jesus tells his followers to give to everyone who begs from you. For the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. He wants them to be cheerful and to generously give willingly to help others when they are in need without thought of receiving either the money or the goods back. Now, this is, again, difficult. Now, if you have a neighbor who's always borrowing your tools, it means you're not going over there saying, hey, give me back this tool or I'm going to hold it against you. Now, it's not saying just let people give away with things or compromise. Obviously, there's things that are appropriate. But it's having this attitude of not looking for revenge, retaliation, and reparation. It's looking to love and to care for them so that you may, you may show them your love and that it is genuine. Now, as I said a moment ago, these things, even these four commands and these three examples that he gives, they are not easy to do, are they? We are not hardwired to respond this way when we're attacked, maligned, and abused. We do not surrender our rights easily or without a fight. No, I, I deserve this. I do not deserve that type of attitude. I don't deserve that type of action or reaction from them. And so what happens is then we respond in kind, trying to, to, to upsert our rights and protect our rights. But here he says, no, you need to 
Surrender your rights. This is the very thing that God has called us to do as followers of Christ. We live in a world where it seems everyone is encouraged to be perpetually offended. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter or anything, it just seems like everyone wants to be offended at everything. Even a text can be taken and, and fights have started over a text. What did you mean when you typed? Well, I just meant this. We've lost all sense of common sense and context. To give up your rights without a fight from many by the world is deemed to be foolish and even cowardly. Yet scripture has called us to a life of meekness. To live a life in which our hearts and our spirits are meek. Now, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Moses, the Bible says, was one of those meekest men's in the world. And he was not a cowardly man with lacking of courage. Jesus is considered meek. No, meekness is not weakness, but a power that is under control of the Holy Spirit as we love as Jesus has commanded us to do. So when he calls us to meek, we're to control our power, control that which God has given us and to genuinely love others. In verse 31, Jesus gives a positive spin on the golden rule when he says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, though the golden rule, now you have to understand, the golden rule is found in many cultures and societies, even before Jesus' earthly ministry. But this rule finds its basis in the Mosaic law. You'll see here on the screen, Leviticus chapter 19, where the Yahweh, your God says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We're to do to others what God has called us to do, what we expect others to do for us. And what is it that you and I desire of people? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, love. We blow it, do we not? We get angry. We, get, we, we abuse others. We are many times that we do not do good to others. What we do, what we do, do we want them to respond in kind to us? No. We want them to respond with mercy and grace. For those who belong to the kingdom of God, we are called to reject revenge. And instead, we are called to love others, to do good and to bless them and even pray for them. Now, to do this requires a change of heart. As John Calvin remarks, that you and I can only accomplish these types of things, to love our neighbors, or, to, or excuse me, to love our enemies, to do good to those that hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who abuse us. The only way that we can accomplish this, listen to this, is that you and I must abandon self-love. We must abandon self-love. See, you love yourself. You care for yourself. You're merciful to yourself. But the reason why we struggle to do these things that God has called us to is because we love ourselves so much. We don't want to surrender our rights. We want to, we want to not give up any offense. We want to hold on to it. We hold on to the grudges. We hold on to the bitterness. Well, this leads us to the principle why we must surrender our rights to retaliation, to revenge, and reparations. Because the precepts ask, why must I do this? So God gives us the principle. 
We find this and we look, in verse, look at verse 32 of Luke chapter 6. And in verse 32, God is now going to give us the why, the principle, why you should love your neighbor, why you should do good to them. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In short, Jesus tells them that they are, they are to respond radically different from the world. He points out that we are not to adopt the same attitudes and motivation of the world. You and I must understand that God has even given the world, those who have rejected Christ, a common grace in which they're kind, in which they can be loving, which they can be merciful to a degree. Spouses can love each other. Parents can love their children and vice versa. There are those who do good works of charity, but yet are not citizens of the kingdom of God. They are not God followers. But the Bible tells us that all of those good works fall short of the glory of God. Is that not true? The Bible says that we cannot work our way to heaven. All of those things are as filthy rags to God, but yet he has given us a common grace in which we can be kind. We give to those expecting something in return. We lend, expecting it to be paid back. We love those who love us. Well, the Bible says the world does that. We must be radically different from them. The commands to love, to pray, to bless, and do good reveal that it's not based on emotions, but on our will. And you and I need to understand that. The things that God is asking us is not if you feel like it, but he calls us to do it even when we do not feel like it. Most likely, you will not feel like loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, doing good to those who who hates you. I'm not going to guarantee it, but most likely you're not going to feel like it. But God has called us to make that decision to do so. Christ or Christian love is not dependent. Christian love, get this if you're taking notes. Christian love is not dependent on the behavior of others. Theologian Daryl Block writes this. Love is many things in our culture. For many, it can be likened to an electric charge, right? You might remember this when you first fell in love. Either the zap of the feeling is there or it's not. For others, love is an arrangement, almost like a contract, sometimes voluntarily, other times imposed by circumstances. Love for family members is not a given. Instead, events have necessitated it. Marriages often proceed with this kind of arranged love. As long as the contract works and the zap and the electricity is present, the arrangement is on. Often such love is managed by performance. Love is be demonstrated by what is done for me. What have you done for me lately? If you really cared, you would do this for me. You understand this. That's what the worldly love is. We hear the phrase, oh, I've fallen out of love. Well, love is not an emotion. It's a choice of the will. He goes on to note, and you'll see this on the screen, the monitor. He says, at the center of Jesus' sermon is this unique concept of love. And this love cannot be reduced merely to the golden rule. 
It is a love that is golden even when everything around us is not. That's what will separate us. As Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for what? Each other. Now the word here is when it tells us to love our enemies. That's not the same love that you and I use. The word love here is the Greek word agape. Now you and I, we have many uh, words for, for, for different things. And love is one of those words in, English, in the English language can mean a variety of things, right? You know, I, I, I love my mom. I love my wife. You know, I love apple pie. I love Chevrolet. I love the bulls. You know, I, you know, I love this, right? And we use one word to say a multitude of things, right? But the love is at various degrees and meanings when I say, do I love apple pie as much as I love my wife? She's sitting here and I will say, of course not. I love her more. I, I make a choice to love her, to care for her more. So what here we're seeing here, agape love, get this. Agape love, in the Greek they have different words for love. They have agape love. They have eros love. They have uh, phileo love, which is a brotherly love. We get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. They, they have different words to express what you and I use one word for. But when God uses this word agape love, this is a godly love. Agape love describes a love, if you're taking notes, is a love that is genuine concern for someone. Agape love describes a love that has a genuine concern for someone. This is the love that God has for his children. As children of God, we are called to love as he has loved, not as the world, not in expectation of a return from them. He has called us to see people the way that God sees them. And so when someone is angry with you, when someone is hateful to you, when someone is cruel to you, how do you view that person? How do you think of them? The Bible tells us that we need to reorient our mind. And we should have a genuine concern, yes, for our spouses, for our children, for those in our, in our community, in our covenant family together. But yet we ought to see our employees or our co-workers with a genuine concern. Our neighbors with a genuine concern. The person who cuts us off as we're trying to get onto the 91 or the 57, what does he say? Have a genuine concern for them. For the person who says, you must wear a mask, we must have a genuine concern for them. The one who says, I'm going to shut down LA, we need to have a genuine concern for them. That's so difficult. That is so countercultural to how the world responds. But see, the reason why is God gives us not just the principle and the precept, but He says you must do this because of this, because in the end it points to the person. And that's where we come to the next point. Look with me at verse 35. As Jesus sums up this part of the teaching. He tells us, do this because it's different than the world. And he says, you need to do this because it's going to point to the person. Verse 35, he sums up, but love your enemies and do good. And lend 
expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be good, great, excuse me, and your reward will be great, and you will be, listen to this, sons of the Most High God. Like father, like son. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So there's a summation there. Why should we do this? Because God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He is merciful even to those that have rejected him, to those who are actively rebelling against him. We are called to surrender our rights of retaliation, revenge, and reparation because we are sons of the Most High. And as sons of God, we are to minimize, or mimic, excuse me, we are to mimic the character of our Father. Not minimize, do not do that maximize. We are to mimic the character of our father. Just like a son, a son will, will act like his father. He'll, he'll adopt many of the characteristics of his father, whether it's for the way he walks, the way he eats, maybe the way he, uh, he, he does different things. He mimics that like father, like son. We are called to do that. And humility, humility is the hallmark of the children of God. And we are called to extend love and mercy to others when confronted with evil. Let me tell you, brother and sister, you will be confronted with evil. You will face many of the things as Thomas faces. Maybe you're already doing it. Maybe it's not at work. Maybe it's within your own family. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. And many of those things are coming down because of our stance on political, cultural stance that find themselves in a biblical world view. Just consider two familiar examples of how we are to extend love and mercy to others when confronted with evil. Think of Stephen, the first first martyr. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen is one of the first deacons, one of the seven. And in it, God has given him great power and he's witnessing and he's testifying before God. And the people are responding in, in anger. And finally, they've had enough and they bring him to a place where they're going to stone him. In those days, uh, punishment uh, for, for this type of things was, was stoning, where they would pick up giant stones and they would throw you in a pit, typically, and then they would just throw stones down at you until you succumb and die. You and I, most of us know the story. It's found in Acts, Luke's other uh, book that he wrote. But he's just sharing the things of God. He's expressing how, how wonderful Jesus is. And in Acts 7, 59, 60, we see, as, as, as Stephen is saying, he says, I see the, the Jesus, and he's set the Son of Man, and he's sitting on the throne room of God. They call it blasphemy, and they, and they tear off their coats, and they throw him down into the pit. And they're getting ready to pick up the rocks, and they begin to throw them at him to kill him. Stephen's last cries... His last breath, he says, and as they were stoning, Stephen called out saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now these are words that you and I might call out. And after falling to his knees, he cried out this with a loud voice. Here is what is amazing. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he died. Could you imagine that? To the one who's persecuting, the one who's trying to kill you and say, Lord, do not hold it. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I'm forgiving them. But then think of 
Jesus, the Son of God. His life and ministry, the righteous Messiah, the Lamb. The one who comes to be our substitute so that we can have salvation. Again, he is taken, as you and I know, he's betrayed by a friend with a, with a kiss, with a traitor, Judas Iscariot. He's beaten, tortured, his beard pulled out, the crown of thorns, made to carry his, his wooden cross after being beaten and tortured with whips. He's on that cross. And what does Jesus cry out with one of his last breaths? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In doing so, Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled what was prophesied of him in Isaiah 53 when it says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus was a son like his father. In the same way, he gave us an example that we too must love those who hate us, pray for those who persecute us, bless those who curse us. Many more stories can be given of the other apostles and missionaries and other servants of God who willingly surrendered their rights so that God may be glorified in their life, their ministry, and even in their death. Why did they undergo and submit themselves to such degradation and humiliation? Because their father is merciful. We can sum this phrase like father, like son by reminding ourselves of God's character of goodness. You see, God is the final standard of good, not the world, not, not any type of philosophical system, but only God. He is that final standard of good. And all that God does and is, is worthy of our approval and of our, and of our imitation. See, when we think about God, God is love, right? God eternally gives of himself and others. Life is a, or love, excuse me, is a self-giving. It's a benefit to others. God's mercy, he says to be mercy. That's God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. God's grace, that's God's goodness towards those who deserve a punishment. And that's you and I. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin, our rebellion against God, our disobedience, our failure to conform to his moral law and our attitudes and our actions and our nature is death. But what we see is God in his mercy made us alive together with him and, has set it and will seat us and give us an inheritance where Christ is. But also God's goodness is shown in his patience and withholding of punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. So just as God's goodness is shown by his love, his mercy, his grace, and his patience, he says, like father, like son, you and I should exhibit these traits as well. He has supernaturally empowered the citizens of the kingdom of God, God's chosen children, to respond in this way. The psalmist sings in Psalms 103 that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you ask, okay, God is good, God is merciful, but why is he? Many people say, why, why does God only save some? Well, that's the wrong question. It's not that why does God only save some people, it's why does God save any of, any of us? God would be righteous and just to send us all 
in damnation to hell. But yet he has chosen to show his mercy and his grace even to those that are his enemies, his adversaries, to those who curse God, to those who hate God. And let me share with you this morning, all who are born are haters of God. There is none righteous, the Bible tells us. No, not one. From the little children that are here to the one that just walked out, little Lando, to the oldest that are here. We are not lovers of God until he comes and supernaturally changes our hearts. So why is that? Why is it? What is the purpose of God's goodness, of his love, his mercy, his grace, and his patience? Well, we find that in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's here on the monitor. He says, do not presume, or do you presume, I should say, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, that God's goodness, that God's mercy and love towards us is to lead us to repentance. In other words, God is patient and loving and kind to his enemies. Why? So that they may see the error of their ways and they may repent. Repent is a, again, that word that means a change of heart, a change of attitude and behavior. It's a 180. I was one way going this way, thinking this way, and now I'm turning going the exact opposite. So God is calling us like father, like son, is to exhibit this, that we too may change their minds and hearts. Now, us not personally, but by our attitudes. It may be that through our obedience, through our giving of mercy, through our surrendering our rights, our imitation of Christ, that others may be drawn to the life-saving work of Christ. Amen? That's our desire and the beauty of God. Buck Parson, he's the pastor at St. Andrew's Church. He tweeted this week, it was interesting, it's providential, it's just going with my message. He says, let's live in a way that makes Christianity look beautiful to the world. Let me say that once again, because I want you to grab this as we go on. Let's live in such a way that makes Christianity look beautiful to the world. Now, would you agree with that statement? I think we would. But let me ask you, just generally, do you think in today's world that Christianity looks beautiful to the world? I would say not. Whether it's our pro-life stance, our concern for traditional marriage, our belief, I should say, traditional marriage, our desire to help those that struggle with gender confusion, our desire to be loving and kind, these are not things that the world looks on Gladly. When they see Christianity, and maybe you are here this way today, and you see Christianity the same way, you see it as just a bunch of rules, a religion, a, a someone who wants to just to run your life. I had a young man tell me that one time, when I says, why don't you come to Christ? You know all you need to know. And he says, you know what? I just want to live my life. I'm too young. I just want to enjoy my life as it is. What are we saying? We just want to live without God. I want to live without his promises. I want to live without his goodness. I, I want to take the good gifts of God, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, breath, and I just want to enjoy it for myself. That's self-love. It's selfishness. But he's saying that you and I need to live in a way that makes Christianity look beautiful. So how are we going to look beautiful to the world? By loving those who hate us. Blessing those who curse us. Giving generously and willing to those who abuse us. That is what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage. 
Our reaction to abuse, hate, and mistreatment can lead others to Christ. Just a quick note on Buck Parsons is interesting. But first, let me ask you, would you choose God over instant fame and fortune? Would you choose God over instant fame and fortune? Because when he says this, you need to understand who Buck Parson is and what he experienced in his life. This is what you may not know about Buck Parsons. In the early 1990s, Burke found himself, when he was a young man, with an opportunity of a lifetime. To be a star with a boy band destined for greatness and riches. A band that would eventually become Backstreet Boys, but he turned it down. He was one of the original ones, started with them, but realized he couldn't go. At the time, he was a young man just learning how to live out his Christian faith. His parents had some health issues, and he was presented with a way to earn more money than he could ever imagine, along with the adoration of many around the world. However, he came to realize that his conscience could not allow him to compromise his Christian faith. Then several years later, he was offered a position with another new band that was just being formed. He would be the first member called NSYNC. Once again, he turned it down. And years later, he wrote this. The question that many Christians have not yet answered for themselves and their world flesh devil serving heroes is this. If our God is a holy God who commands us in the New Testament to come out from among the world so that we may shine as light to the dark world in order to proclaim life and liberty in Jesus Christ to the world, how can we actually serve God and the world? God in the fame and our flesh seeks. God in money, God in self. Don't forget, God doesn't need us to have a big audience so that thousands or millions of people can like us, so that they might get to be like him, Jesus, with few in number. And he didn't command them to gain the audience of the world by mimicking the world. He told us that his kingdom is just the opposite. And the gospel is what saves, not our good looks, our talents, and our fame. He gave it all up. He's now the pastor, co-pastor, at the church of ours, at St. Andrews, where, where uh, R.C. Sproul used to be in the pulpit. Why? Because he chose to follow God. And see, so many pastors, so many churches, they have brought this pragmatic, seeker-sensitive uh, model into the church. Let's be like the world. Let's give them what the world wants, and then we can grow. And they have. There are many churches that are 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 plus That'll give you exactly what you want. Their menu is a la carte. We'll give you whatever you want. Yeah, in a small community church, you may not get those things. But let me share you, you will get the word of truth. And the Bible tells us to love with genuine concern those who are opposed against us. Now you and I will probably never face this type of situation of instant fame and fortune. But we are faced with much more one much more common situation to love our enemies to do good to those who hate us to give generously to others so that they may see Christ in us the apostle Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians it's here on the screen on the monitor he says let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander what be put away be put away from you along with all malice that desire to seek revenge be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
God has called us as children of God, as citizens of the kingdom, to respond differently in the world. We are to be radically different. It ought to be remarkably different. Take your Bibles, turn to Romans 12, and we are close to the end, I promise you. In Romans 12, Paul is writing to the church of Rome that was undergoing some immense tribulation. And they were on the eve of a persecution that will cost many Christians their freedom, their property, and eventually their life. And as we come to verse 9, we almost see his kind of, of, of giving of the Sermon of the Mount and Sermon of the Plain. Look at verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable and in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let me just take a moment. There are going to be some people that no matter how lovingly you are to them, no matter how much grace and mercy you give them, you are just not going to connect. There is just going to be something that's going to keep you from, from enjoying each other's company. But let it be on their end, not on you. That's what he's saying there. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, in verse 20, he closes, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat or drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Pastor Alistair Begg tweets this. It's here on the monitor so you can see it. When people are reconciled to God, as you and I should be, and I pray today that you are, if not, would you come today and be reconciled with God? Today is the day of salvation. He says, when people are reconciled to God, they no longer look at people the way they once did. They are not my enemies. They are not my abuser. They are not the offender, but they are people made in the image of God. They are sinners in need of a sinner. He says they do not see people the way they once did and they no longer look at Jesus the way they once did. I pray that's you today. Would you counsel and advise, let me ask you this as you go, as we close. Would you counsel and advise Thomas from our case study a little bit differently than you would have at the beginning of the message? I'm sure most of us would. Suffering is part and parcel of our sanctification journey. We will be faced with those who hate us, those who will persecute us, those who will abuse us. Well, may God make us sufficient to choose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And may we consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of the world. These are the attitudes and behaviors fitting the sons of the Most High God. Like father, like son. Join me this morning in committing to love those who are at times unlovable. Commit to pray for those who actively hate and work against us and bless those who work against us. And lastly, seek to serve those who need Christ the most. Would you commit that to this morning?
with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up. I'd like for you to take a moment to pause and consider the, what we've given you, the precepts, the examples, the principle of living differently in the world and then the person of God, the one who is merciful. Would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you respond? Is there someone you need to seek forgiveness from? Is there someone you need to lend to? Is there some ways that you've been retaliating, seeking revenge, or demanding reparations? I pray that this morning that you be willing to give it all up, surrender it all up, so that you may not only gain Christ, but you may also gain those people to Christ. Father, make us sufficient for such things. We thank you for your goodness, your love. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.